Well, good morning, guys. Boy, it has been great being here with you guys. You know, Rod was really right. You guys don't realize what an energetic, upbeat, responsive, weird group of guys you are. Uh, but it, it really is a privilege to, to be here with you. And since at the end, when I finish my talk, I'm going to kind of step off the stage. I just want to take a, a moment to let you know how, how privileged I am to be able to be here with you this weekend, to be able to be with Rod and the leadership team. And wow, was the worship team awesome? I mean, give these guys a special thank you, will you? I mean, they've been wonderful. And don't you think apologetics has been, like, really weird? I mean, haven't they? Yeah. I got to talk with Carl last night, spelled with a K. And we had a really good conversation because, you know, in light of what I talked about last night, um, I asked him where they were staying after here, and he goes, I don't know. And I go, why not? And he goes, we never know what hotel we're staying in until after the fact when we're driven there. Because we do concerts for a lot of people where there's a lot of women, girls there. And when someone says where you're staying, we honestly can say we don't know. Uh, they also have a policy in their ministry. They never go anywhere in a car alone with a woman, any of them. Um, once they're in their hotel room, they're never allowed to leave their hotel room as a team. See, there's a protective steps that they take in order to maintain their purity and their integrity. The coolest thing to me was whenever his picture is taken with another, like, these teenage girls come, take your picture with me, take your picture. He always uh, is going like this, you know, like with his arm. And that's a signal to his wife, I'm thinking of you, because all the pictures go on the Internet. And whenever he signs uh, shirts, you know, like for girls, he makes sure he signs on the back, lest they go up to someone and say, look who signed my shirt. So I think that's... Um, even though she's not wearing it when he signs it. But you know what? These guys, these guys have a ministry uh, in, in a part of the world with high school kids that most of us would never, ever be able to get into. They did a concert in Pennsylvania last year where there's somewhere between 13 and 16,000, uh, mostly students present. And so when you think of their weirdness, you think of how they connect with other weird people, namely high school kids. Uh, <laughs> But you guys, we need to be praying for them as, as a group of people in their ministry. But anyway, um, it is, yeah. It is, it is awesome to be with you guys. And um, I, got, I want to tell you about, about something that, that happened to me. But first, I do want to mention... I don't know if there's any scuba divers in this group, but I'm planning a trip in December, the 5th to the 11th, to Cozumel, and there's still room for a couple more couples. The topic is how to listen to your wife at an emotional level. <laughs> That'll get her to go if she's interested. Um, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the back table afterwards if you want more information. I want to mention this is, the first, this is the first place ever that when good men are tempted has been available on CD. So those of you guys who don't know how to read, uh, here it is. It's on CD. Um, this is my, my newest book, Six Battles. I've actually got guys emailing me, ordering it by case lots. One guy in San Antonio that has a radio ministry there that interviewed me said it's the best book for men he's ever read, ever. And he reads about 75 books a year, so he makes up for a lot of other guys. But um, everything I'm saying today on this talk comes down to this book by Rod Cooper and me called, when good men are, uh, called uh, Kids in Sports. Terrible title, terrible cover. 
It's on understanding your child's temperament and how by doing that you can bring out the best in them. By understanding your temperament, you can adapt your fathering style to your kid. And then there's a chapter on the blessing, which is what I'm talking about. So I just want to make those available to you. Do, we, do any of you guys ever misplace or lose things? Let, let's see. I'm curious. Gosh, I, I mean, I, I have this problem where I just lose things all the time. And, and so I had misplaced something, and uh, I went to Washington to speak at a men's event. And these guys didn't know I was joking when I told them this. I just joined a group called Losers Anonymous. <laughs> and they're going, they're, no one's laughing. They're going, oh, this is serious. <laughs> I said, it's for guys who lose things. Do any of you ever, are any of you losers? And no one raised their hand. And I said, well, I went to my first meeting, and I've got a sponsor. His name is Joe. And at the meeting, everyone stands up and says, hi, I'm Joe. I'm a loser. And everyone else says, hi, Joe. We're losers. Joe's my sponsor now. He's been on the wagon for six months. He knows that he loses everything. If he falls off the wagon, he'll lose everything. If he loses anything, he'll lose everything. In fact, there's an inventory you can take to see if you're a loser or not. And, of course, it's modeled after the Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you know, profile. And that is, do you ever find yourself starting your morning off by losing something? <laughs> Have members of your family ever expressed concern to you about you losing things? <laughs> Have you ever awakened in the morning and you've totally had a blackout and you can't remember where you, placed it, where you put anything? <laughs> I have to tell you, though, and I, and I confess to these guys, and all this time they think I'm serious, um, there was actually an intervention. Uh, all my kids flew into town, and my wife, and they sat me down in the living room, and they just said, Dad, we just want you to know, you're a loser. <laughs> I didn't know everyone knew I was a loser. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> I went to church, okay, and on the way home, I stopped off at Costco. And um, I bought a few things, and then I got home, about a 20-minute drive. I, uh, my wife hears the garage door come up. She comes out and goes, "Hun, you left your uh, planner at Costco. They just called. And I go, okay, I'll go get it. So I go back to Costco. I go up to customer service deal. The lady's there, and I go, oh, this is unbelievable. You know, I just joined this group, Losers Anonymous. And she goes, really? And I go, yeah, and you have to stand up at the meeting. In fact, they teach us every day to look in the mirror, first thing, and go, I'm Bill. I'm a loser. And there's this lady in about her mid to late 60s standing next to me. She goes, I think that's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> and I said, you know, the first step in recovery is to embrace the fact that you're a loser. And more people are losers than are willing to admit it. So anyway, I go through this whole routine with a lady behind the desk. She knows I'm joking, and we're laughing like crazy. She gives me my planner. I get in my car. I've been gone about five minutes when I realized I left my cell phone there. <laughs> I park my car right in the front. I walk in, and she's holding up my phone. Here, you loser! can I say? <laughs> this weekend we've been talking about mission. And our mission is to glorify God. So you might say, my mission is to glorify God. Say that with me. My mission is to glorify God. And the word glorify means to express 
in a visible way, the attributes and character of God. That means when other people see me, they should see in me what God is like living in a man. They should see the attitude of forgiveness and grace and patience, the fruit of the Spirit. Whenever I'm walking with Christ and I demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in my life, I'm really bringing glory to God. Now, it's a process. I mean, we all know it's a process. And by the way, for those of you who are newcomers to the faith, don't look at me or any of these other guys here and think we've arrived. We've all got a long way to go. It's a process. But during those moments when we are trusting Christ and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we glorify God because others see in us what God is like when he's, when he's living in a man. Um, we want to glorify God. In order to do that, we've got to have huddles. We've got to have groups of other guys, a group of other guys that are going to be there to support us and to encourage us and to challenge us and to hold us accountable, to pray with us, to laugh with us, to cry with us. We've got to have that huddle. But you know, another mission, as we, there's the mission of the huddle and there's the mission of, of, of our purpose. But then there's this whole idea, if we're going to glorify God, we've got to be men of purity, integrity. The word integrity means the same on the inside as I appear to be on the outside. And by the way, let me say something parenthetically to those of you who are newcomers to the faith. What the leadership of Roundup just did in regards to the former president, you may be thinking, whoa, does that mean like if I confess what I've done, they're going to tell the whole group? I'm keeping it a secret. Uh, no. What Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, told the church was the confession and the acknowledgement has to be as broad as is that person's position of leadership. They would be violating Paul's injunction if they did not tell you. But what that means is that for most people, the confession and the acknowledgement is a very small circle. Okay? But the higher we get in leadership, the more it has to be acknowledged. So what they did, while very difficult, was very appropriate because it keeps the leadership and this ministry in subjection to God. That means you get the blessing of God. But integrity means the same on the inside as I appear to be on the outside. And if I appear to be a man of purity, then I want to be a man of purity in the, way that I thought, in the way that I think, the way that I speak, the way I behave. So we've got this mission to glorify God. We do it with a huddle. We, we seek purity. But now specifically, there is no area in which we need to fulfill this mission that's more important than in the context of our families. Now I want you to know that what I'm going to be saying today is specifically addressing dads. So it may be that those of you who are students, who are single, who are father, who are, who are married without children, you're going, well, what's this got to do with me? These principles are so strategic, so important, so life-changing, that the concept that a dad has to have with his kids are concepts and principles that are crucial to healthy interaction with other people. And so if you glean from what I'm going to say specifically to dads and you apply some of these principles to your life, whether you're a single student like a lot of you who are here that are in junior high or high school or even college, or a lot of you that are single men or some of you who are, who are married without children, these principles of how to bless a child transfer onto how to give a blessing to other people and lubricate other relationships. So before we kind of jump into this, let's take a moment and pray together. 
Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of knowing you through Jesus. God, help us be men who fulfill the mission to glorify you and to do it within our families. And teach us how to do that now, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I thought it would be appropriate, since I'm going to be talking about family, to kind of introduce you to mine. And first thing I'd like to do is introduce you to my dog. <laughs> I actually saw that pit up here, that uh, picture. My son was a graduated from OSU here, and I went into his, uh, the house where he lives with some other guys, and that picture was on the wall, and he emailed it to me. But actually, here's a picture of my family. Uh, and uh, that's my wife to my right. This was taken last Christmas. Uh, just to my wife's right is my uh, middle son, Will. Student at PSU, going to graduate in December. To his right is my youngest son, Paul, uh, who is quite an energetic go-getter guy. Did a White House internship last year. Is now working for the uh, re-election of the president. Uh, in their hands is El Nino, a uh, Chihuahua. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew. We used to have a Great Dane. All a Chihuahua is is a nervous system of a Great Dane compressed into a little bitty dog. <laughs> That's what a chihuahua is. Uh, and then uh, just in front of me is Ryan, my oldest son. Uh, to his right, Serene, his wife. Uh, she's a surgeon at Thomas Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. He's working on a PhD in South Asian Studies. Um, their passion and, and desire is actually to go to Pakistan, uh, where she would uh, work at the hospital and he would teach at the university. Uh, that's my grandson, Elijah. You know, it really is amazing how everyone that gets a baby or a grandchild, they always say that theirs is the cutest and the smartest. What are the chances that mine would actually have been? I mean, <laughs> but that's, that's a snapshot of my, of my family. And you have in your mind, in your wallet, a snapshot of your own family. And it's fascinating that we never carry in our wallet, do we, a picture of our employer. <laughs> we carry in our wallet a picture of those people we love the most, those people we care for the most. And of course, the problem is that even though we love them the most, sometimes we're not motivated, and sometimes we don't even know how to express to them the love that we feel for them. And it kind of reminds me of a story of a fellow who every night after work, he would stop by Sloppy Joe's bar, and he would drink. And he wouldn't just have one or two drinks. He would stay there till closing time. So by the time that he left, he was, to say the least, very drunk. And... Uh, in order to get home, across the street from Sloppy Joe's, there was a, a, a cemetery, and there was a path that crossed diagonally through that cemetery, and he would walk through that path kind of to get home a little bit faster. Well, one particular night, after he had drinked himself almost underneath the stool upon which he was sitting, he came out, and it had been raining all day, and it's still raining, and he kind of staggers along that path through that cemetery. What he didn't know is that during the day, they'd actually dug a grave in the middle of that path. So when he got to the grave, he didn't see it coming, and he fell down into it. Splash! Thud! Plump! Well, he kind of looks around and decides he wants to get out of this hole and tries to jump out, but it's too deep. He tries to claw his way down, but it's too slippery. And so finally, he just curls up in a corner and goes to sleep. About 2 o'clock in the morning, there's this guy driving through town, and he runs out of gas in front of Sloppy Joe's. Hadn't got his cell phone. 
hadn't got any gas. And now it's no longer raining. It's just kind of a light mist with this fog that's just kind of hovering in a spooky sort of a way over the ground. And this is one of these guys that's kind of paranoid when it comes to dead people in cemeteries. But when he gets out of his car and looks around, the only light he can see is on the other side of this cemetery. And so he decides that even though it's a creepy thing to do, he's going to walk as fast as he can, whistling while he walks, right through that path that runs diagonally through the cemetery. And he's walking as fast as he can when all of a sudden he falls into that hole. And when he hits with a splash, the drunk wakes up. But he doesn't say anything. This guy is freaking out. He tries to jump out, he can't. He tries to claw his way out, he can't. Finally, he pauses for a moment, huffing and puffing and huffing and puffing, and the drunk yells at him, you'll never get out. But he did. Just goes to show you when you're motivated, you can do all kinds of things. And what I'd like to provide you with this morning is the kind of understanding that you need as a dad that will hopefully motivate you and equip you to be able to express to your kids, your grandkids, the kind of love that you have for them and to do it in the way that God wants you to. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, Jesus, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, to the disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. What a profound example. What a role model of what we as men are to do with our children. And contained within what we as dad do with our, are to do with our children are principles, which as I said, transfer to any man in terms of human relationships. Because... What we discover is that the Greek word for bless meant to speak well of or to praise somebody. In the Old Testament times, the blessing transferred a good thing from one person to another. When Isaac, under God's direction, blessed Jacob, he imparted to him the promise of bountiful crops, many servants, and leadership in the family. And understand, in Old Testament days, when... when Isaac blessed Jacob and put his hands on him. There was, in fact, a legal transfer of his wealth from father to son. He had the ability under divine inspiration to actually do more than that and to predict the blessing that God was going to bring upon his son. And while we may not be able by blessing our children to legally transfer to them wealth, and we not, may not be able under divine inspiration to see what's going to happen to them in the future, we have the capability by blessing our children of giving them something more valuable than money. We have the capability of giving them the assurance and the confidence that dad loves me. And I'm here to tell you in the dark days of their life, that will be the North Star that will keep them on track and keep them heading in the right direction if they know that their dad loves them. 
There are three ways that every dad can glorify God with his children by giving them this blessing. And the first is with verbal affirmation. You see, we read in Proverbs 25:11, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And what that means is that a blessing that a dad gives a child fits perfectly into the need of that child. The need of that child is like a setting on a ring. And the blessing of the dad is like an apple of gold that he places in it. It's perfect for the moment and it's perfect for the child. We read in Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has power over life and death. Listen to me, men. The words that you speak are either a sword that will slash the soul of your child into shreds or it will be a healing ointment that will strengthen and heal and nurture that child and help them grow. It is important that we adapt our affirmation to each child's unique personality. Every kid is different. And the words that we speak to affirm one child need to be different than those that we speak to affirm another child. When Rod and I wrote that book, Kids in Sports, I was pastoring and he was working on his PhD. He had done a lot of research on the Performax personality profile. And, you know, I discovered that there's extroverts and there's introverts and there's two kinds of extroverts, the driven extrovert and the more personal, relational, outgoing, friendly extrovert. And there's two kinds of introverts, the analytical and the more steady introvert. And what I discovered, and what you'll find in that book, is that the need and the personality of each child is very different. And we as dads have a responsibility to understand our children so that we can adapt the affirmation to the uniqueness of the child. In Proverbs 22.6 we read, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old he will not depart from it. Now historically what people have thought that meant was when your child is young homeschool them and get them in a Christian school. Get them in a Christian high school and if you can afford it get them in a Christian college because you know if you can show them the right path if you can teach them the right stuff Chances are they're going to rebel, they're going to blow God off, they're going to walk away from it all. But if you do that, God promises that when they're old and decrepit, they're going to come back to the Lord. Well, that's some promise. The problem with the promise is we all know people who did that and their kids walked away from the Lord and never came back. Or else they died in their rebellion. But you see, that's not what the passage says. When the passage says, train up a child... The word train is speaking of a birth maid who right after an infant is born, she kind of, she dips her finger in dates, places that index finger into the mouth of the infant and rubs it around the palate of the mouth, creating a sucking sensation and cleansing the palate. So what Solomon is saying is as fathers, what we want to do is interact with our children in such a way that we create in them a sucking, a sucking sensation or a desire for the truth that we're giving them. And then when he says, in the way, historically what people have thought is that means show them the narrow path. But that's not what that phrase in the way means. In fact, Solomon uses it in Proverbs chapter 39, verse 18 and 19. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. And 
what he's saying is basically there's something so beautiful and so majestic about an eagle in its flight or a ship on the sea or a man with a maiden. Okay, the serpent part I don't get. But there's something... <laughs> there is something beautiful and majestic and unique that defies human description. When you see the beauty of a ship catching the wind and, and sailing across the water or an eagle that's caught that current and he's, he's almost playing as he flies or a man with a maiden, a serpent on a rock. There's just something about it. And what Solomon is saying when train up a child in the way he should go is there is something beautiful and unique and majestic and wonderful about each of your children's personalities. You need to not only interact with them in a way that creates a sucking desire and appetite for the truth you give them, but you need to adapt your affirmation, your teaching, your relationship according to the uniqueness of each child's personality. And then he says, when he is old, he would not depart from it. In the Hebrew, the word when he is old means when he is bearded. When does a kid get a beard? He gets it when he passes through puberty, when he becomes an adolescent, when he becomes a young man. And basically what he's saying is, look it, if you will interact with your child in such a way that you're creating them a desire for truth, if you adapt the way you interact with them to the uniqueness of each child's personality, when they pass through adolescence and become young men, they're not going to rebel against you. They're not going to rebel against God. Hey, that doesn't mean there won't be some struggles. That doesn't mean there won't be some issues. But the relationship will be strong and the relationship will be in that, intact. When I was a little boy, there's nothing I wanted more than to be like my dad. I, I, I can remember as a boy watching my dad walk and walking behind him. And I still to this day remember the angle of his feet when he would walk. And I wanted to walk like my dad. And one of my responsibilities as a little boy was to shine my dad's shoes and you know he had a brown pair of alligator shoes and he had a he had a black pair of alligator shoes and he liked nice shoes and my job every week was to shine his shoes for him and then went all the way through junior high school I shined my dad's shoes and of course as I mentioned last night you know what my dad wanted from me more than anything else was to be this real athletic guy he wanted to be a, be a fighter. He himself had been a, you know, a semi-pro boxer for a while. He was really you know, quite the football player as a young man. And his biggest dream for me was I would be a college or a professional football player. And I've got to tell you, you know, if I had been bigger, stronger, faster, and had a higher pain threshold, I would have been a pro football player. <laughs> I'm serious, I would have been. Well, actually, when I was in the ninth grade, I was a decent football player. I played quarterback, um, I played defensive back, and I ran back kickoffs. I was running back a kickoff in a, in a game when a guy tackled me from the right side, basically blowing out my knee. And back in those days, when I was 16 years old, what surgeons did was they opened up your knee, gutted it, and sewed it back up. My problem was now I had no ACL, no anterior cruciate ligament, so if I'm running straight and I cut to the left, my knee would buckle and I would fall to the ground writhing in pain. Well, after this happened a few times, what I lacked in size and speed and quickness and strength and in, uh, and in pain threshold, I made up for it with wisdom that said, if you stop playing, you'll quit hurting. <laughs> and so at the ripe old age of 16, I, grad I, I retired from the gridiron. 
You know, I'll never forget, in order to encourage me to keep playing, one day my dad said to me, he said, um, son, the problem isn't with your knee. The problem is you're a quitter. And I realized in that moment that I would never get my dad's blessing. That what he most wanted in a son, I could not, nor would I ever be. So I went through high school and college and seminary and, you know, kept in touch with my parents, moved to Oregon, lived in Oregon for, I don't know, some 15 years when my dad, due to failing health, moved out to live with us. And for the last, during the last seven years of his life, five of those years, he lived with us. And I thought, this is great. I'm finally going to be able to connect with my dad on a soul level and get the blessing of my dad. And see, the problem was my dad would bless me, but he would always steal the blessing back. He would praise and affirm me, and then he would come back with some cutting, sarcastic, put-down sort of a remark. He would just see weaknesses in me, physically or in other ways, and point those out to me. So I didn't know it. One day he called me in his room and said, son, I want to give you something. And he took this diamond ring off of his finger, which he had had as long as I could remember. And he said, you know, son, I was going to wait until I died for you to get this, but I want you to have it now. You're my only son. I want you to have this ring. And I took that ring and I went, wow, dad blessed me. How's he going to steal this away? So I had it sized to fit my finger. About six months later, at that time, every week, there was a Bible study prayer time in our home. And on this particular week, it happened to be his birthday. So we had a birthday cake. And, you know, a bunch of the people from the church were there for this, for this study. And Dad was up there and someone said, Mr. Perkins, tell us something about Bill we don't know. And he goes, I'll tell you something about Bill you don't know. He said, show him that ring. And I showed him the ring. And he goes, do you ever tell you how you got that ring? And they go, no, how do you get it, Mr. Perkins? He goes, well... He said, you know, I planned on giving him that ring after I died. But I was in the hospital, and I didn't want them nurses to steal it, so I took it off. And I said, son, you keep this till I get out of the hospital. And he said, I got out of the hospital, and I was looking all over for that ring, and I'll be blankety-blank if he hadn't had it sized down to fit his finger. <laughs> so now everyone knew the pastor had stolen from his dad when he was unconscious. So I, a few days later, I said, I took off the ring and I gave it to dad. And I go, what's the deal here with this, man? I said, I thought you wanted me to have this. I gave him back the ring. A couple days later, he called me in his room again and said, you know, son, I really do want you to have this. And I said, are you sure, dad? He goes, no, I really do. Well, a few years later, he had to move into an assisted living home. So after he'd been in there a short time, I went to join him for dinner and to meet some of his buddies. And he finished the meal earlier and went upstairs. And I kind of want to see how they were connecting. And so... As soon as he was gone, one of them said, show us that ring. So I showed him the ring. I said, what did he tell you about that ring? And one of them said, he told us how you stole it off his finger while he was in the hospital. And another one said, and I told him he should get it back from you. And a third one said, yeah, but he said you'd had it sized to fit your finger. And I said, well, don't believe everything my dad tells you. On December 30th, 2001, I got a call from the nurses where he lived, saying he was in a lot of pain. Took him to the hospital, and all the way to the hospital, he was telling me how much he loved me. I'm so glad that you're my son. I'm so proud of you. I want you to know that, son. I'm dying, and I want you to know I love you. And you see, when your dad's blessed you throughout your life, but he's always stolen it back, you want to receive the blessing, but you're afraid to receive the blessing. 
lest you receive it, he takes it away and it's more painful than it would have been if you'd protected yourself from it. Well, I took him to the hospital and stayed with him until three in the afternoon when he was admitted. They could tell that he had pneumonia, but it seemed as though he'd be okay. At eight o'clock that night, I got a phone call. Your dad's dying. Because it was Christmas time, the whole family was there. We went up to the hospital, stayed with him for a while. Will, my middle son, and I slept on the floor on pads. Shortly before five in the morning, his breathing got heavy, and we woke up, woke up, and I walked over and put my hands on my dad's chest. When after 87 years of life, millions of breaths, he took his last breath. As I drove home, I thought, well, this is ironic. He finally blessed me and then died before he could steal it back. <laughs> I'd been so wounded I did not know how I would feel about my dad. A few days later, I was cleaning out his apartment. I opened his closet, and there were his shoes. I picked up my dad's shoes, and I remembered him wearing them when I was a boy. I remember walking behind him and shining them for all those years, and how much as a boy I adored my dad. And it was like the Spirit of God's took a great hand and just broke away a dam that just washed away the bitterness and resentment and replaced it with a childlike affection for my dad. God had given me back what I had lost. But the lesson is this. We don't have to bless our kids and steal it back. We can bless them and bless them and bless them. And it also means for some of you guys who've not been blessed by your dad as I wasn't. How can I give that which I don't have? There is a Father in heaven who will fill our cup with his blessing so that our emotional cup is full and we can bless our children. And it's absolutely essential that we, that we bless our children. And then in blessing our children, we speak words into their life that build them up. Words that build them up and encourage them. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but Bill, you don't know my kids. It's all a matter of focus. It's like this uh, woman's husband um, had been asked by the boss if they would host the annual Fourth of July par party. And when he asked his wife, she was excited. They had a new lakefront property, a beautiful yard, great home for entertaining. And, of course, the company was paying for it, so they had an unlimited budget. And she hired the the, you know, the best caterer in town, a great band. When the party finally came around, everyone was having an awesome time, honored even being a lakefront property like this. They were having a blast. And all of a sudden, she remembered something she had forgotten to do. She had this little girl, Susie, a seven-year-old, six-year-old, very rambunctious. She would talk and then think, and she kind of cornered her daughter and said, now, Susie, you know, your boss, Mr. Jones, is here, and he's the guy with a really big nose. And when you meet him, I don't want you staring at his nails. I don't want you touching him. I don't want you asking him if it's real. I just want you to say, hi, Mr. Jones, and then leave, okay? And she goes, sure, Mom. And so about an hour later, Mom looks up, and her heart leaps up into her throat because there's Susie right in front of Mr. Jones. She rushes over there and goes, oh, Mr. Jones, I wanted you to meet my daughter, Susie. Susie, this is your dad's boss, Mr. Jones. And I told you because she goes, hi, Mr. Jones, it's good to meet you. Oh, well, I'm going to go play with my friends. And she bounces off. The mom goes, Mr. Jones, can I fill your nose with coffee? <laughs> Mr. 
It's all a matter of focus. <laughs> you will see what you look for. You will see what you look for. And it's absolutely essential that we look for in our children that which is worthy of praise and affirmation. We need to affirm our kids. We need to affirm them often. We need to affirm them uniquely. We need to let them know how much we love them. And then secondly, we glorify God with our children. We show them what God and the dad is like with physical affirmation. Notice, please, he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them. You know, when these kids came up to Jesus, I don't know how clean they were. I don't know if they had snotty noses and dirty clothes. And, you know, what I do know is he didn't go, whoa, hold on there. Be cleansed. Come to me, children. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? He didn't stand up like a big teacher and God bless you. You know, the image is really Jesus bending down and taking these children in his arms and touching them. And it really is fascinating because research now indicates that physicians who when they visit their patients and put their hand on their shoulder or forearm when they talk about, talk to them, facilitate quicker healing because human touch releases endorphins. Endorphins give us a sensation of, of, of health, a, a positive, pleasant feeling. And human touch is not only something that tells someone we love them, it's actually good for their health. And it really is imperative that as dads, we learn to demonstrate to our children healthy physical affection. And I'm here to tell you, there is nothing that will protect your kids from unhealthy touching like healthy touching, safe touching. We need to hug our kids. We need to wrestle with our kids. We need to give our kids physical affection. Now, for some guys, that's easy and natural. For me, it's really always been easy and natural. But for some guys, you know, well, that would be weird. Come on, I'm not going to hug my kids. What are you talking about, man? They know I love them. Do you ever tell them? No. You ever hug them? No, but they know. Well, how do they know? They just know. It's like the guy who got married. After 30 years of his marriage, his wife says, Hon, do I still love you? And he goes, excuse me? Do you still love me? He goes, didn't I tell you I loved you the day we got married? Until I tell you different, it still goes. Well, I provide for them. I take care of them. I feed them. I clothe them. I shelter them. It's not enough. It's not enough. Now, my sons are grown now, but I never greet them. I never let them leave without a hug, without a kiss on the cheek. I don't wrestle with them anymore because I don't like losing. <laughs> my oldest son, Ryan, played collegiate soccer, and at his level was All-American, and and yet I like to tell people he's never beaten me one-on-one. -on -one. He hasn't. Because when he got to where he could beat me, I didn't play him anymore. <laughs> My youngest son, on the other hand, if I didn't let him beat me half the time, he wouldn't even play me. I don't ever remember my dad initiating a hug. I remember hugging my dad. I remember filling his beard and smelling Old Spice. 
But we need to hug our kids and bless our kids. Ryan, when he graduated from Moody Bible Institute, headed up a ministry in, uh, in the Chicago area to Muslims and wanted to go to Pakistan. And in fact, had he not met Serene and gotten married, that's probably where he would be today. And one week I was staying with him and these other college students were allowed to do internships by living with him and being involved in his ministry. And one night, um, after we'd had dinner, Ryan and three of these guys and I were sitting at a table and Ryan had kind of planned on leaving for overseas soon. And um, I asked if I could pray for each of these young men and they said yes. And I walked over to these men and I put my hands on their shoulders. And I prayed for each of them. And when I got to Ryan, I wrapped my arms around him from behind and put my chin on his shoulder. I meant to bless him, but I started crying. And then I started weeping. My tears were running down his neck. And he started weeping. And his three friends started weeping. Here we were, four men, all crying. And finally I got enough self-control that, that I could pray for my son and bless my son, whom I love more than my life. And um, later he said, you know, Dad, those three guys said how blessed I was to have you as a dad. And I thought, what a fitting word. Blessed. How blessed I am to have blessed him and to be blessed back. There's no greater gift that you can give your children than to give them the gift of both verbal and physical affirmation. They need it, and they need it often. And then finally, predictive affirmation. And it's not something that we think about much. And we don't think about it because we don't have the divine inspiration like um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had when they blessed their kids, where God enabled them to see into the future what would happen to them, right? But predictive affirmation means I ask God to show me something about this child, something unique about him. So that when I pray for him and when I speak into his life, I have a sense of how his personality may somehow be used by God in a special way in the future. And, and in Six Battles, as you read this book, I talk about my sons. And it's fascinating when I talk about blessing them as young men, as boys, as children. Um, how God gave me insight into their unique personalities. And I dedicated this book to my favorite son. Can you go back one, please? Um, I want to read this dedication to you. I dedicate this book to my favorite son. He has filled my life with more joy than he can ever imagine. Ryan, you were the first. I learned that I could love a child more than life, and I do. 
You've always been my favorite. I wrestled with you first, played soccer with you first, memorized scripture with you first, and loved you first. You're my favorite. And I knew, I know that God will use you to touch the world. And someone pointed it out to me. Bill, you know, in the book earlier when you mentioned Ryan, it was like early on you had this belief that he was going to touch the world. And here he's got a vision of going to the other side of the world. I dedicated this to my favorite son, David Will. With you, I learned that no two kids are alike. I discovered that creativity and fun are endless, and you are my favorite. Even though you find it hard to believe, it's true. Yes, I tell the others this, but Will, I love you the most. Your friendship will change the world. He's always had the ability to connect with people. His cell phone's constantly ringing. Paul. I learned that a son can be more mature than his dad and a better leader. I said to him once, you know, Paul, in many ways you're more mature than me. And he goes, well, Dad, I grew up in a better family. (laughs) As you've always known, you're my favorite. And I realize you believe this. And you should since it's true. But keep it between us. Don't tell your brothers. I know your faithfulness will change the world. When he was five, my wife had to go to Ohio because her mother was ill. I gave the responsibility of doing the laundry for the whole family to the most faithful kid, Paul, at age five. And for two weeks, he never missed a day of the laundry. The guy he worked for at the White House as an intern has had hundreds of interns, but none better than this guy. Faithfulness. God will show you what is unique about each child, each grandchild. Bless them according to the uniqueness of their personality. Pray that God gives you insight to pray for them as to how they will be used. And that creates in them the belief that God has a special plan for them, something unique for them. And again, if you're single, you're a dad without kids, you're going, how do I use this? Hey, listen. Bless the people around you and don't steal it back. Learn what it means to do appropriate touching. As you see potential in people, speak into their life the potential that you see in them. You see, we glorify God. We glorify God when we when we allow our kids to see what God can do through a dad by blessing them, giving them physical and verbal and predictive affirmation. Dr. Phil Littleford took his 14-year-old son to Alaska on a fishing trip. When they arrived in Anchorage, they were met by the pilot of the inland plane with them pontoons on the bottom and the single prop in front and their fishing guide. They loaded the equipment up into the plane and took off, flew along an inlet where there was a river that connected with the inlet, landed the plane on that water and tied it up on some rocks along the shore. Got their gear out, hiked upstream, caught more fish than they thought they could even carry back. And when they got back, Mark, Dr. Littleton's 12-year-old son, eyes got bigger than a saucer 
Because what he saw was so unexpected. The tide had dropped 14 feet. And in that part of the world, it's one of the largest tide differentials in the whole world. And there was that plane with its pontoon sitting on the rocks. The pilot said, not a problem. We'll have fish over an open fire. We'll sleep under the stars and we'll take off in the morning. And that's what they did. They sizzled that fish in that pan over an open fire at night. They slept under the star-stenciled sky. And just as the birds were beginning to sing and the sun began to peek over the horizon, they got up and had more fish. Loaded their stuff into the plane. Now that the tide was up, pilots started up that engine, turning that prop, and taxied it down onto that glassy, smooth water and took off. And the moment he was airborne, he knew something terrible had happened. When the tide had dropped, the weight of the plane pushing down against those rocks had caused one of those rocks to tear a hole in a pontoon. When the tide came back in, that pontoon had filled with water. The pilot tried to control a landing, but he couldn't. The plane spun crazily and crashed into those frigid, icy, cold Alaskan waters. Immediately after everything was settled, Dr. Littleford looked around to make sure everyone was alive, especially Mark. Everyone was okay. They got out of the plane, but there were no life jackets, and there was a strong current pulling out to sea. The pilot and the, and the guide were strong swimmers, and they were able to swim to shore. Phil knew that he too could swim to shore, but he didn't have the strength to bring Mark with him. He had to make a decision. The decision that he made was to stay with his son. The fishing guide and the pilot said the last time they saw them, the two were together. Silhouettes against the water being pulled by the tide out to sea. I cannot tell that story without imagining myself in that frigid, icy cold water having survived the shock of a plane wreck and seeing the freckled face of Ryan, my oldest, seeing the, the fearful eyes of Will, my second, seeing Paul looking up at me, my youngest. Dad, can you get us out of this? And knowing that I couldn't. I know without a doubt that I would not only stay and embrace them and die with them, I know for a fact it would be one of the most joyful moments of honor in my life to die with the sun in those frigid waters. And I know that there is not a man here today that would not give his life for his child. The far bigger question is, Will we live for them? This is episode 20 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're finishing up Men's Roundup 2004. This is session four with Bill Perkins.